I would encourage you to grab your Bible or your app, whatever your choice is, and go to Philippians 1, 2, 1 through 13. I resisted the strong urge as telling Paul to preach on the gospel passage because this one was too good and too timely to pass up. So we're going to be in Philippians 2, 1 through 13. So let's spiritually reason and listen our way through these words of Paul. So this is Paul, the apostle, speaking to the church in Philippi, obviously. He is speaking as their shepherd and their pastor and their spiritual father in that sense. That's the tone. That's the voice here. So as he often speaks, there is both spiritual authority and care. Those things are just wrapped together. So whether Paul's aim is uh, instruction, whether it's encouragement, whether it's clarification, whether it's mediation, whether it's correction, there's always this pastoral heart and this underlying affection. It's always present in the epistles, which I, I love that. And let us not forget how to hear this. These letters were written for a church community. So they get, a, oh, we have a letter from Brother Paul. And they'd read it publicly. So this message would be read in that context. So imagine as you hear me that that is how this is being brought to you. Because these are really um, the words of a loving yet imprisoned bishop, in a sense, to the missionary church he planted. This is a word from shepherd to flock. So I hope you can maybe hear that from me today, too. Therefore, it begins, or so if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, <clears throat> pardon me, any affection, sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. When you see the therefore, what's the joke? What do you ask? What's it there for? Okay. Paul is alluding back to Philippians 1.27, which says this. Listen to the similar language. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your faith in the gospel. That you're, excuse me. That you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of, faith of the gospel. I hope you hear the parallel language there. This oneness in the community because of the gospel. Hear that sameness, oneness language. So Paul is making a call to unity. It's not the only place he makes it. This is a very consistent call in all of his letters. Unity, living in peace, handling discord. These are all things that Paul talked about at length. And he goes back to them again and again. You might ask why. Why is unity such a big deal for Paul? Well, one, it's good for the body. And two, lest we forget, we've got work to do. There are people and folks and missions to be had. There's a world out there that needs saving, if you want to think of it in that way, lest we forget. So, it's good for the body, but guess what? It actually impacts mission, too, when we aren't at peace with one another, when we aren't unified with one another, when we're not uh, working through our discord in a way that's good. And the point of that unity is this right here, Jesus, that is the point of unity. So Paul encourages them, be of the same mind of Jesus, be of the same love about Jesus, be unified by Jesus, be unified in Jesus, be unified through Jesus. Don't forget your plumb line. Don't forget it. Because your plumb line is a person. His name is Jesus. But what does church unity look like? Well, let me start with what it isn't. 
That might be helpful. Sometimes we paint with contrast. I want to do that for a minute. Um, Church unity doesn't mean that our individuality vanishes or that it's sort of absorbed into the mighty Borg collective, if you watch Star Trek. It's not what it is. It's not about sort of conforming and unity and at the expense of who God made each person to be. It's not what it is. Let me give you a contemporary example. Very contemporary. Let's think about race and ethnicity. The body of Christ was never intended to be monochromatic. Never, never, never. We aren't to be colorblind. That's not biblical thinking. Okay? We are to see that color. While the language is dated, and some might say politically not correct, think of that song, Jesus Loves the Little Children. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Okay? So there's a recognition of those things. Those are seen that um, individuality is a good thing. They're all children, but of these varying glorious hues. Okay? So we don't lose our individuality. It doesn't vanish or get absorbed into the, you know, the Christian collective we call the church. It's not it. That's not Christian unity. Neither does it mean, and you might know where I'm going with this because you've heard it from me before, neither does it mean we're lone rangers. Neither does it mean that we're kind of rugged individuals. That really is the great and unbiblical lie of our American culture. The elevation of the individual to the point where unity isn't possible. It's just sort of obliterated or made very problematized. When we've got a bunch of folks hanging on the individualism, that's a club at best. And it's at the mercy of any individual whim or passion. See? Christian community. See what I did there? Community. The church, it is a both end. Okay? So your individuality matters. And it finds meaning and context in light of the whole. So think of that scripture passage. And I apologize. I'm not great with chapter verse. One body, many parts. Right? Christ is the head. And every part has dignity. And we're all the remaining body parts. So there's this unity, but there's also this individual diversity. That's another community theme that Paul explores in other places at great length at some points. So Paul's call to unity here is not a call to check your identity at the door, to drink the Kool-Aid, and to conform to the dominant culture of the day, as some theologians interpret this passage. Now, that's a straw man argument. That won't do. That is not Christian unity. To both end. Okay? There's something unifying and our individuality remains intact. That's what Paul's talking about. He talks about unity. So he says, be of one mind, be of one love, be of one accord. You hear all that language in this passage around Jesus. Be unified around the cross. Now that's always true of Christian community. Who, who would say yeah, the cross is a point of unity? Who's going to disagree with that? Well, probably no one. I think it is especially true for us during moments of hardship and trial uh, and conflict. Those are the moments when we really tenaciously need to cling to Jesus. And we find strength and encouragement from the others who are also gathered around that cross with us. That is to be a comfort to us. Okay, so great idea. Nobody's probably going to disagree with me here about uh, the call to unity. Yep, sounds good. Uh, But how do we go about that? How do we live out that unity? How do we have oneness of mind? How do we have oneness of spirit? How do we have oneness of mission? How do we be of one accord? How do we do that? Paul gives us some advice in verses three and four. And rather than reading it, I'm going to sum it up. It's basically this. 
You want unity? Serve one another. Serve one another. Live out this unity by serving one another. Which means eschewing ambition and pursuing humility. That's verse 3. So, shame and honor, very potent cultural forces in the ancient Near East. Not just for Jews, not just for Romans, not just for Greeks. Strong, strong cultural uh, forces at work. That's a unique world that we can't quite rock. But in Roman culture in particular, you sought out this upward mobility. You sought out honor. You wanted to move away from the shame of lowly station and rise up into a position of honor. Shame and honor. Upward social mobility. So to be in a higher social standing, it did meant you had a certain power and it gave you a certain cultural currency. They were available to you. So you chased honor. You, you pursued ambition. And if you had to step on a few people's backs to do so, to get up that ladder, that's fine. So people of honor, people of high social standing, were treated as more important, and they were deemed worthy of respect and honor. Think with me of that phrase, the seat of honor. Do you remember that from the Gospels? That happens in several scenarios. The seat of honor at a gathering place or at a meal. It's in all those Gospel stories. Everybody wanted the seat of honor. And often the Scriptures note Who's, who's pursuing that? Who wants that? Who takes that? Think of the disciples arguing. Jesus, we don't know who's going to sit at your right and at your left. Those are the seats of honor. Okay? Places of honor. These are examples, the ways Paul's talking about it, of selfish ambition, seeking honor for yourself. Self-exaltation. The avoidance of shame. Right? Now, we have our own version of shame and honor, I think, in our culture. Uh, I think... That's probably another sermon, honestly. There are people we honor and esteem. There are people we shame. There's ways we run from our shame and seek out honor for ourselves. Uh, people will pay a great price for honor and esteem. Amen? Will they? Think on that. So how does honor and shame play out in our culture? Again, another sermon. So the corrective Paul provides is humility. Uh, valuing others, listen to the language, above yourself. Still verse 3. I don't have to pursue a seat of honor for myself, nor do I need to hold on to it if I have it. I can actually, here's Paul's point, I can actually give it away. I can give it away. That's the humility Paul's talking about here. It's an intentional lowering of yourself on the social ladder in order to exalt, lift up someone else. You see that? I'm going to get small so someone else can grow. I'm making room for someone. This isn't self-degradation, okay? It's not what I'm talking about. This is just merely choosing to love someone and to serve someone. You know, kind of like, a, here, you take the seat of honor. No, 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 you. You have this place. It's a relinquishment of our station on behalf of our brothers and sisters. So if we fight over anything, let's fight over how to outserve each other, Okay? The corrective is humility, valuing others above yourself. Looking out and moving to verse four, looking out for the interest of others before your own. Kind of a foregone conclusion if we've just caught his meaning. I want you to think of how radically this notion can transform the church. Okay? What if? Do a what if with me. Okay? What if? Envision this. What if you or I didn't need to worry or concern yourself with your own interests? What if you didn't have to worry about that? What if you didn't need to protect your own interests or you didn't fear getting steamrolled because you knew someone else had your back 
What if you didn't have to do that? Because you knew someone has my best interests at heart. What if? Can you imagine how that would revolutionize Christian fellowship? What peace and trust that would engender. How much fear and anxiety that would take away. I love this. It's pretty staggering. But this is the humility Paul's inviting us into. Put others before, above yourselves. Now, I don't have time to get into this fully, but this is all the more poignant and powerful because the cultural milieu, the individual was very vulnerable in that society, far more than this society. You found stability and safety being part of a group. You often survived doing this. So it makes it, puts it, makes it even more poignant. So humility, noble, worthy, virtue to pursue. We won't argue with that. Nobody's going to go, I don't think so, Christianity. But lest you remain just a virtue, Paul's going to anchor this humility in the person of, guess who? Who would you guess? Jesus. That's where he anchors it. That's our anchor. That's our plumb line. So Paul calls us to be of one mind. He calls us to be unified and to be clear about this call to humility. And literally, when you read through verse 5, it's, this, it's kind of this, let's think Christ together. That's the point of verse 5. And Jesus is our example of what humility looks like. So, Paul gets to it. And this is verse 6 to 11. And this is a sermon series unto itself, which I will not inflict upon you at this moment. We're going to do a flyby. You'll notice in most of your Bibles, uh, 6 through 11 is probably, or might be, formatted a little differently. It's because it's a quote. Paul's might be citing an early Christian hymn here. We don't know for certain. I don't think it matters, to be honest. It's this very beautiful and profound bit of theology that summarizes Jesus' life and mission in a certain captivating way. It's a story that began before time itself. It deals with, starts with the pre-existent Christ and goes all the way uh, up to his ascension. So I'm going to give you a brief flyby, but don't miss this. Because again, here's the example of humility. Paul's saying, unity, humility, here's the example. So, listen to the language. Very important. 6 through 11. It begins with a descent. And what I mean is the incarnation. Okay? Begins with Jesus taking on flesh. This descent is an act of humility for God to do this. Theologians call it God condescending to us. Consistent theme of Jesus is him emptying himself. Kenosis. It says he made himself nothing. This idea of you are pouring yourself out on someone else's behalf a lowering of himself so it may be a little bit it's not unlike an adult when they're talking to a child when they stoop down and they speak with the child at eye level right and they meet them in their world from their viewpoint this is just a far more drastic version of that and the incarnation is very different as a narrative and as a story to all these competing Roman and Greek pagan myths about Zeus and Jupiter and all that. So Zeus or Jupiter or the, or the Greek and Roman gods, what would they do? They would they'd come down to earth, sure. They'd kind of do that, play that part, and they'd interact with humankind. But here's the difference. It was always in their self-interest. It was never for the benefit of humanity. And that is where the incarnation is very different. I think this hymn, if it is a hymn, is really polemical in this way. This God-man is different. This is Jesus. So he descends from on high. Incarnation. So his descent, his emptying of himself, means taking on the role 
of an obedient servant or slave is a way you can translate that. An obedient slave. Now, I've got questions here. Obedient to whom? Slave to whom? What's all that about? That is not as straightforward an answer as you might think. I think it's a two-part answer. Uh, the Gospels make it clear. The rest of the Scriptures do. Jesus the Son is obedient to God the Father. Read the Gospel of John and walk away with anything other than that. I challenge you to do that. Okay, so Jesus is obedient to God the Father. Yes, they're on the same mission. Yes. But Jesus is not a servant of God the Father. That's not what it's talking about here. That's not the slavery. Jesus willingly submits himself as a slave and a servant of, guess who? Humanity. Think of him washing his disciples' feet. There's an example. Think of what we do on Monday, Thursday. Jesus is serving humanity. Okay? That's what he chooses to be a slave to. So Jesus humbles himself on our behalf. And again, we have to think in those honor-shame categories. In that cultural climbing and ascending of the ladder or being uh, driven down the ladder. So here's what I love about this. Everyone wants to go up, right? Climb that social ladder, right? Seek that honor. Seek it for yourself. What does Jesus do? The, the complete opposite. He goes down. He goes down. All of a sudden, the descent just keeps going. Jesus, wait, hold on. Whoa, you're going in the wrong direction, Jesus. That's shameful. Yeah. And Jesus goes all the way to the bottom floor, to the lowest, lowest, lowest of the low, which is that cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a what? Cross. So crucifixion wasn't just about dying a very horrible, painful death. It certainly was that. Crucifixion was meant to publicly shame someone and to humiliate them. That was half the point. It was done in public. It was not private. That's how Rome used it. They used it to rob a person of all their honor and all their human dignity and to heap shame upon those who rebelled against the regime. That's how it worked. So to be crucified was the utmost humiliation. And Jesus chose humiliation for us. Chose it. So to say he humbled himself, we throw that phrase around a lot. But that just does not capture how deep the rabbit hole goes, does it? Jesus humbled himself from the heights of heaven. Can we get any higher than that? I don't think so. To the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the low. Human humiliation, death on a cross, ground zero. Some will say his descent continued all the way down to the very pit of hell itself. The point is, from the highest of the high to the lowest of the low, Jesus, the glory of the Father, the King of kings, became our shame and our dishonor to bring us life. He gave up his rightful place of dignity for us. Notice Jesus actually has a claim to take the seat of honor. He has a claim, a rightful claim. We really don't. He does. He gave it up. So he becomes a slave on our behalf, a servant to us all. Jesus got low. Okay? Jesus got low. But you know what happens? Verse 9. What's the old hymn? Up from the grave... He arose in a mighty... He's risen. You notice what we've done? This has been one long drop. And now we're coming up. The way up is the way down. He arises. He's resurrected. That upward movement continues with the ascension. Okay? Going to the right hand of, of God the Father. And notice this. Don't miss this. Watch this in the language. God the Father is the one exalting and lifting him up. 
God is the one doing that from the grave and to his right hand on high. He is given honor, said. He didn't seek it out for himself. How about that? How about that? It's bestowed on him by God the Father. It's not because he sought it out for himself. He is given the title of Lord, a scandal to every human Caesar. Verse 10, 11, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So let's observe the arc of 6 through 11. Okay, Profound descent. It's like a bomb being dropped. The humility and servanthood to the point of death. Two, the resurrection and the ascension to glory, not because Jesus saw it for himself. The way up is the way down. <laughs> that is our faith. So this is a pretty radical example of humility. Serving others, placing others ahead of ourselves, to look for opportunities to give away our seats of honor. Who does that? Christians. Jesus, let me remind you, said in a minute ago, had an actual right and a station to claim as the highest seat of honor. More than anyone. Like he could lay that claim, and yet he lays it down for other people. Lays it down for us. That is the correct use of Christian freedom and liberty. That is the correct use. The language of rights, which frustrates me to no end, is not a biblical concept. It isn't. And even if it is, and we can twist the scriptures around to say that, there's something we give up for someone else's good. That is what we do. So we lay down our freedom and liberty readily and quickly on behalf of, guess what, our brothers and sisters. Think about that. We practice that. That would revolutionize the church and mission. 12 and 13. There's another therefore. You know what the therefore is there for at this point. Therefore, given the above, given this Christ hymn of, hum- of humility, given what I just said, given all that, that example of humility, my beloved here, Paul speaking again as pastor, shepherd of his flock, continue to obey me even in my absence. Paul is actually in Roman prison at this time. Continue to obey me. There's nothing stern in here. This is very warm, steeped in love and pastoral care, okay? Therefore, I'm going to exhort you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a great verse. And it makes a lot of Protestants really nervous. It's like, whoa, 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 hey, hey, hold on there, cowboy. We're we're getting into works righteousness here, aren't we? And uh, it makes some folks nervous, and they, they do some rather creative, if not violent, exegetical gymnastics with verse 12. I think it's unwarranted. Let me tell you why. When Paul is saying, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for one, that your is plural. So he's saying y'all. Y'all work it out. And he's talking to that church, right? This is not speaking about individual salvation. It's that that which we've all received in Christ Jesus, which is our common bond of unity. So he's saying, y'all, so let's pay attention to that. Therefore, in view of Christ's example set before us, we just walked through. Y'all work at your salvation. That's a better translation. Y'all work at your salvation. Y'all work it out amongst yourselves. One author says this, we are to work at what God in his grace has worked in. Makes sense? We are to work at what God in his grace has worked in. So we strive to be the church God sees when he looks at us. We strive to be a community anchored in Jesus. And all this means, really, 
is that we embrace the full work of Jesus in our communal life. A healthy church works at our salvation. That's just how it happens. Salvation's already done and handled. We know this. Okay, That's done, handled, secured. But we are always growing in our understanding of what Christ has already done for us. So we're to work at it together. Y'all, work at your salvation. Okay? Healthy churches don't become healthy by accident. It does not just happen. We work at it. We labor at it. We fight for it. We do it together. Okay? And we work at it with, what's that phrase? Fear and trembling. Right? What's up with that? What does that mean? Paul does like that phrase a lot. Uses it a lot. 2 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 6. Other places. It's a heart posture of how we're supposed to do this together. That's what he's trying to get at. Fear and trembling is really just about humility and awe. Humility and awe, right? Uh, Because when you think about it, I mean, can a gift this glorious or this mysterious or this precious as our salvation be stewarded and received any other way than humility and awe? When properly understood, I think that's the only way you can come at it, truthfully. So shared humility, shared sense of awe, can act as, mm, I don't know how to put this. I think that could be a communal sacrament that can lead us to grateful worship. Look at what God has done for us. That's part of working out our salvation together. Now, I really love that Paul speaks of salvation in a communal way. We need that. We need that. That's not an anomaly, by the way, guys. That's not just a one-off, like, that's an interesting idea. No, that's biblical Christianity. Okay? He speaks of salvation in a communal context. That is a good corrective. If you were raised anything like me, it was all about my personal relationship with Jesus. How many times have you heard that phrase, my personal relationship with Jesus? There's nothing wrong with that. But there is if that's the only thing you hear. Right? If that's the only way that you're taught. And that's been one of the difficult byproducts of the American evangelical church the last 50, 60 years. Is that focus on my personal relationship with Jesus. Because we don't work out our salvation alone. (laughs) We don't work at it alone. That's actually impossible. This cannot be done in Christian community. You can't live out. Think of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Don't memorize. Don't fault me. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. You cannot live those out alone. They have to be done in community. That's working at your salvation together. So Christianity, and guess what? Paul isn't landing on this tremendously hard, but it's a team sport. God saves individuals, no doubt. But he immediately situates them in the body, in the family, and in the household of God. That's the context, right? Unity, individuality, all goes together. Finally, but dear church, this is verse 13. Lest you try to work at your salvation together in your own power, remember that it is God who works in you for his good pleasure. This seems self-explanatory to me at this point. Uh, You can't work at this salvation unless God is working in y'all, right? You got to let God work in here. You got to let God work in here. And if he is, that's the power. That's where it comes from. So y'all work at your salvation together in fear and trembling with humility and awe. Okay, let's close here. I only have two points for you, and they're even brief. Hooray. Uh, And I think they'll make sense. So unity is always important. 
So it's always important. It's not that it's unessential. It's always essential. But all the more in times of trial. Okay? We are in just such a difficult season as the church. We are. Right? So we must rally around Jesus. We must rally around that plumb line who's a person. That's the only way we're going to be of one mind. That's the only way we're going to be of one spirit. That's the one way we're going to be of one anything is to cling to Jesus together. So that's one. Cling to Jesus together. Let's do that together. Second piece, we got to get low, right? Jesus got low. We got to get low. Second point, that means that we serve one another. So, like, look around at folks. Just take a peek. Look around. For real. Not a courtesy. Like, he's asking me to do this. I guess I should, I guess I should do this learning exercise. Take a look around. And wonder, how can I look out for so-and-so's interests right now? Right? Like, David, how can I look out for David? How can I look out for Caroline? How can I look out for Dana? How can I look out for Knox? How can I do that? How can I look out for their interests? How can I lift them up? Right? Elevate them. How can I seek their good? Where can I, as Jesus said, where can I sacrifice on their behalf? Where can I do that? Because I wonder if I did that, huh, that might open up some incredible possibilities in our midst. Okay, so cling to Jesus. Let's do that together. And let's get low, just as Jesus did.